Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Control Alt Azure. This episode is sponsored by ScriptRunner. ScriptRunner is a great solution to centrally manage PowerShell scripts and standardize and automate IT tasks via a graphical user interface for help desk or end users. Check that out on scriptrunner.com. Hey, Yussi, what's up? Hey, Toby. This week, I am once again resetting the way I, I manage my personal productivity. And, and by this, I mean the tasks, the stuff you want to achieve daily or weekly or monthly. And for the longest of times, I had a couple of text files. I would open Notepad++, I would simply edit those, and I sort of felt that I was super productive. And I, I think I was, at least for the time being. And then I started using Microsoft To Do. It sort of worked for me. Perhaps it wasn't an optimal solution. And, and for the past year or so, I've been going back and forth between different apps, between a text file, between using posted notes that I still have like 10 here. But this week I, I, I promised to myself, I will discard everything, all of the previous systems and not have overlapping systems. And I will just use one digital tool and the posted notes. So I am now starting my migration to an app called Todoist. And the reason I'm going for that is that based on my tests of all of the available to-do and, and productivity capturing apps, that felt like the, the one with least friction and, 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 and the most optimized one. And we'll, we'll see how it goes. But today, when we're done recording this, uh, unless something more urgent comes up, I will spend an hour to migrate all of my tasks in this one app. And perhaps next week, we will hear how that went. Yeah, sounds good. I, I think I've tried that as well once. Um, I also have apps or tasks spread across different apps and services. So let me know how that goes. Might be interesting to take that for another spin. Um, on my side, uh, you know, it's getting cold now in Sweden, which means it's a great opportunity for nighttime hiking and sleeping in the freezing woods, just like normal people do. And uh, that means I get to uh, cook outdoors. And that's amazing. Uh, but what's even better, of course, is doing it after you've done a 20 to 30 kilometer hike with about 25 kilos uh, gear in your backpack. And then, then you know, you carry cooking equipment, you carry whatever you need to drink and, and a lot of food and, and whatever supplies you need really to survive in case the, the real bad weather hits as well. And then you make a nice three course fine dining meal in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you know, that's how I enjoy life to the fullest. So usually we're, we're a few friends. We go out and we do these camping trips or hiking trips. A lot of people we know, they go camping where they put all the gear into the car. They take the car and drive to a parking lot in the woods and they put the tent next to the car. And that's, you know, their way of doing camping, which is still very nice. It's, you know, you get out into the nature and you can do excursions and whatever. We like to do it a little bit more authentic in the way that we have to survive with what we carry. And we, we might be walking then for two or three days and, uh, you know, we don't really have anything else other than the things we carry, uh, which means also a water filtration system is in my backpack. So if the water and drinks run out, 
we can always fetch new water from the creeks and then filter it so we, we get pure water we can boil. Um, but that's a different story. But, you know, the time is right now. Uh, it's, it's getting below freezing point where I live, which makes it even more fun to get out on these excursions. Because when you move a lot and, and you carry all this weight in the gear, you don't really get cold because you have to use a lot of your energy. Also means you have to bring a lot of food and, and supplies. Otherwise, if your energy is drained and you're in the middle of the woods, you know, it might not be a good idea uh, for several reasons. Um, you know, the cold being one, obviously. Um, so that's, uh, that's what I'm up to right now. I'm planning the next set of hikes so we can get out there and, and have a great time. The one drawback with doing this in the wintertime is the foraging is not as prominent. So you cannot really pick the mushrooms and cannot really find the berries and, and these things to eat. So come spring, and there's some things that we can harvest, and then come uh, autumn and fall again, then there's other things we can harvest. So each season has something to offer. And right now it's just pure cold water, uh, freezing outdoors, not a lot of other people outdoors because it's so cold. So super excited to... Uh, make the next plans for the next set of hikes. That sounds like fun. Uh, I can't admit that we would do something as extreme, perhaps. We do the occasional hike, but that's like a full day hike, but we are still relatively close to the car in the sense that, yeah, it's two hours back to the car. And I, I, I think with the small kids, that's doable for now. But hopefully in the coming years, we'll get to do something like this as well. So today, this is episode 118, backing up PostgreSQL databases in Azure. So the idea is that let's talk about something that I think, Toby, yourself and myself, we haven't really used that much, but we have been exposed to certain aspects of PostgreSQL, the database engine, which is an open source relational database engine natively available in Azure. But before we get started, do you pronounce it as PostgreSQL or Postgres or something else? I see uh, PostgreSQL because that's what it says, right? It's PostgreSQL, yeah. but then if, if you look at other places, it says Postgres. Uh, I don't know. I say PostgreSQL. Yeah, makes sense. I, I actually went to Wikipedia to try to fact check what, which is it. <laughs> and it used to be Postgres, but then it was renamed to PostgreSQL. And when you do a search on PostgreSQL, how to pronounce, Google is actually offering you this audio clip that uh, where somebody is pronouncing it and you can even slow it down to capture the essence of how to pronounce the service. Important name. things. <laughs> yeah, so today when we talk about PostgreSQL or Postgres, it is going to be the same thing. So. I see this used quite a bit, especially with data scientists and often developers who, for one reason or another, do not want or cannot use Azure SQL, and they still need the relational aspects, and perhaps Oracle or something else is too heavy. So I see this as a sort of a lightweight approach from SQL Server running in a VM or Azure SQL, which might have some limitations. So it, it sort of falls in between these. And now it's native, natively available in Azure, <clears throat> and the service is called Azure Database for PostgreSQL. So you do not need a VM. Are you running this yourself? I am operating PostgreSQL or 
the full name than Azure Database or PostgreSQL in our production workloads. Uh, so I have several instances across, uh, you know, dev, QA, and production systems. So I am using it. And, um, you know, to, to add a bit to, uh, to the audience there, you mentioned developers and data scientists and people perhaps from outside of the Microsoft space might use it. And we also use it because PostgreSQL has support for JSON. Uh, so you can store JSON formats, just like a document DB or, or uh, uh, what Cosmos can do. But it also has relations and supports a you know a, a great query language like SQL, uh, which some adaptations. Of course, it's not the exact same queries we do in PostgreSQL as we do in, in others, but it's really similar. So if you're familiar with a traditional kind of T-SQL or SQL syntax, then this is fairly easy to get your head around. But I like the the fact that we can store entities and we can store objects. Uh, with relations and also with uh, as JSON data. So we can just take our, you know, from most of our APIs, we get a reply in, in JSON format. We can take that, plug that into uh, a storage bucket or into a database in whatever format and, and way we want. But it makes it a lot easier to not have to kind of serialize and deserialize certain things and move them around and just stuff like that. Like that. So uh, there are some use cases where I think this is beneficial. But again, this comes down to know, your unique requirements for your applications and your solutions. Uh, but I, I like this flexibility that it offers in the way that you can use it as a traditional, uh, like a RDBMS or a relational database management system, or you can use it as a, um, you know, plugging a, like a document DB, just plug in uh, JSON files and documents, or you can use it as something else entirely, like a, a key value pair, like in uh, table storage. So the, the options are many. Uh, then, of course, you need to decide, is it worth going to a, a managed service for that, as opposed to something NoSQL or something which is kind of serverless, like Azure storage accounts in the sense. Uh, so, th so the short answer is, yeah, we do use it um, for, for several things. Okay, sounds, sounds interesting, especially the JSON support. I did not realize <clears throat> it has this support built in. So, so for sizing, uh, you get to select between basic general purpose and memory optimized. And this sort of implies that when you set up an instance of Postgres in Azure using this sort of serverless approach, it's still going to either provision a VM for you that you do not get to manage, or it's chopping off uh, an instance for you from an existing cluster, perhaps. So generation five is the latest one now in Azure for Postgres, and it has multiple options. And the smallest is two virtual cores, and it scales up to 64 virtual cores. So I initially set this up uh, about two years ago. Uh, I at, at the time, I had a customer who really wanted to run all of their Postgres things in Azure, and I promised to help them. So I, I spent a couple of days dumping down on the information available. But, but now with backing up, and that's really the focus now, is how do you back this up? Because it's not a native Microsoft service, but Microsoft is offering that as an open source uh, approach here. So you cannot really utilize exactly the same approaches you would use with Azure SQL or with Cosmos DB. And, and for me, I've been doing manual backups as scheduled backups before. And there's a command line tool called PG dump, which as the name says, it dumps the database to a local file. 
And I, I tried this with a couple of instances I have access to, and it ran for six hours, and it didn't really feel too optimal. But, but Joe, before you, since you're running this also in production, are you using PG dump? Are you using something else? Or did you not really care so much for this just yet? So, so the things we plug into this type of database is uh, non-critical and non-sensitive and something we can regenerate whenever we want. So we use it because of the strong query capabilities inside of this database, but we also have the data in storage accounts. And the reason we, we do that is storage accounts are super quick when you do a key value pair lookups and when you do you know, the, the more uh, simplistic queries. Um, nothing can beat the performance of a storage account. It is so fast. However, when you need to do order by or sort by, um, or if you need to do group by, it doesn't have support for that. You know, it, it, the complex query types does not exist in a storage account. You can manipulate how you put data into a storage account, uh, into table storage with the row key and partition keys and make things sortable, uh, which is also what we're doing. Um, but if you then need to sort by something else other than the, the thing you designed, then that's not possible and not easily. So the, the great query capabilities with the SQL language and in Azure database for PostgreSQL is also a reason why we want it. But because we have this data also in storage accounts, we can, with the click of a button or with the run of a command, say, replicate this data now into the format we need into the PostgreSQL, uh, which I think takes equal amount of time as, you know, doing a backup and restore on the PostgreSQL database. So at, the, at this point in time, we don't actually use a backup off the PostgreSQL for the reason that we can pretty much regenerate this uh, ad hoc on the fly. Uh, otherwise, we would probably have to look into that as well. That's an interesting approach. And uh, besides PG Dump, you have an open source tool called PG Admin. And that's a graphical tool. It's a bit like what you would use with SQL Server with Management Studio. And you connect to an instance and then you get to do things. But obviously that's all manual. And if you want scheduled backups, there's now a capability as part of Azure Backup Vault. Let's talk about that in a second. But, but first, what's interesting is that when you have the instance up and running, you know you want to implement backups and, and obviously some, someday you want to restore something, you need to define the backup retention first before you configure backing up because backup retention is part of the instance or, or the size of the instance that you choose to provision. And retention seven days is minimum, 35 days is maximum. And I did look this up, I didn't memorize this. So for databases up to four terabytes, you get full backups weekly, a differential twice a day, and transaction logs every five minutes. So I feel this is exactly the same model you would use on a SQL server. So if you want to restore something, you would first pick up the last, the latest weekly backup, then the latest differential, and then the transaction logs up to the point of restore. And if you have databases uh, between four terabytes and 16, you can use snapshots, which obviously are faster, but they are also differential. So you can do three of those per day, plus the transaction logs every five minutes. 
And perhaps the reason why we are talking about backup here is that I often encounter Postgres instances set up by developers, data scientists, people working in machine learning, but they simply need the capability. They do not need to worry about the operational excellence. So they worry very little about backing up and restoring or everything else. So inevitably, at some point, somebody will ask, are we backing this stuff up because this is now crucial for us after we've been using this for a year? And for this, we now have a preview feature as part of Azure Backup Vault. Are you familiar? Are you using Backup Vault besides Postgres? Uh, most of the data that I have today is running in, in table storage or PostgreSQL, and, and table storage does not support the backup vault or the other way around. Backup vault does not support table storage in that sense. So we're not really using it, or at least I cannot speak to this in the terms of have I used this in production. So I, I cannot talk about how that would work or how it works. I've played around with it. Uh, I've tried it out a couple of times for different things in preview, but that's pretty much it. So I'm I'm pretty blank on that, you know, other than reading the documentation and, and you know seeing what it can do. I've never actually worked with it. Okay. I I distinctly recall that about 85 episodes ago or so, we did an episode on backup center, which was then announced, I think at Ignite or something as a preview. And backup center positions here so that that's sort of the interface. And a backup vault is is the is the storage place where you store all of your backups for whatever services. So it's a centralized view on everything you want to backup. And when you start configuring backup for Postgres now, uh, you get to choose if you want to backup a VM or an Azure SQL or Cosmos or something else. But now there's an option for preview backups of Postgres. And for that, you need to configure the backup policy. How often do you want to backup? And that follows by default the backup retention. And what's interesting now is that when you select which databases to backup, you will connect with the instance that you want to find the databases from. And then you get to select the individual databases within that instance. So the instance is a server running Postgres. But what's now interesting here, and I did struggle with this quite a bit uh, initially when, when I set, it, set this up in preview, you need Key Vault. And usually you would perhaps want to provision a separate Key Vault instance away from everything else. And within the Key Vault, the instruction says, store a secret in the Key Vault, and the secret needs to contain the database connection string, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. And when you extract the connection string, from the Postgres settings, it doesn't have the username or the password. So you add those manually in a text editor, then you copy the whole string to Key Vault and make it as non-expiring, unless of course you want to rotate the password of the Postgres, which you usually don't. And once this is done, for me, it failed. So when I was trying to configure Backup Vault to backup Postgres databases, it would always give me this cryptic error message that it's unable to find the databases. And then it hits me within the password that we used to connect to the Postgres instance. We were using a semicolon. <laughs> and since nice. the connection string uses semicolon <laughs> to differentiate between the columns, 
the, mm-hmm. the capability in preview here is not clever enough to count the amount of columns it's getting from your text file, which is in Key Vault. 2002 is coming back to me right now. <laughs> yeah. And, and when I was looking at this, I was like, well, yeah, you perhaps shouldn't use a semicolon in a password, but why not use? Because you don't think it, it, it would be a problem like this. But what's interesting is that I could still use pgAdmin and pgDump to connect with Postgres with the same credentials, even if I'm, I'm inputting the same connection string through there. So they are clever enough to parse it correctly. But for this, it didn't work. So to resolve this, just create a new account, like something called Azure Backup, and use a strong password. Obviously, you cannot use MFA for this. Use a strong password that does not have a semicolon built in. And even then, it failed for me because it was saying, yes, I can get the secret from Key Vault. I am now trying to initiate the backup, but I'm unable to uh, enumerate everything within the database. And the problem for this is that it's actually using a sort of uh, managed identity behind the scenes here. And for this, Microsoft has created a PowerShell script that you first run to sort of prep the database instance that Backup Vault needs to connect and impersonate with the secret that you're planning and using. Uh, so let's let's put the link in the show notes for the script. And I, I tried understanding what the script is doing, but I, I figured that it's just easier to run it and answer the different questions it's asking and hope that it succeeds. And once this is done, everything works. So it's a bit hacky for now, but it works. All right, that sounds nice. Um, so I, I like this way of backing things up. And the the reason I say this sounds nice is because to back up things in table storage that I do, you have to build pretty complex partial scripts because there is no backup utility for table storage. Um, so in order to do that, you either have to replicate it uh, manually to other storage accounts, or you have to get all the data and put that in a different format and store that as a zip file or whatever you need. Or if you have terabytes of data, you know that's not optimal, then you have to find a different solution to ship it elsewhere. So even if there's a, a few extra steps in the backup you describe here, I still feel this is a lot easier than you know crafting your own kind of PowerShell backups for Azure storage table accounts, and then you know have whatever logic work there and then adapt that to the changes that happens in the cloud and make sure the, the thing work. But so we're now at the point where we've done the backup. We configured the key vault, put this stuff in there. We assigned the roles and uh, ran this partial script for Azure uh, database for PostgreSQL SQL that you mentioned. And then you ran the backup and now we can see we have a backup retention. We can see the backups and everything looks great. But we all know that you know a backup is only as good as being able to restore that backup. Otherwise, you have a backup, but you don't really have disaster recovery. And in order to kind of recover from that, we need to do the restore. So how, how would you, with a PostgreSQL database like this, do the restore procedure? So this is interesting with the restore, because if you've been working with Azure SQL or SQL Server, restore often happens so that you connect with the existing server where you already have the database that you want to restore, perhaps a point in time restore. And you simply right click restore, select a backup device and select whatever version of the backup. And then you get to choose if you want to override the existing database, which might be the one in production, 
or if you want to restore as a temporary database to sort of compare or, or use some data from the restored copy. But with Postgres, it doesn't work like this. So what you have to do, is you have to go back to your backup vault, you have to find the backup, and then say restore, but that will actually create a new instance of Postgres for you. So you cannot use the graphical tools to restore a backup back to where you took the backup from. You have to create a new instance, and obviously that's going to cost you a little bit of money. And then you have a new copy and a new server, a new connection string, everything. And now you can use PG dump or PG admin to move stuff between the newly restored instance back to the original one. And this is also the guidance if you accidentally maybe drop a table in, in the production database and you just need to restore the table. You need to restore the whole database, then you need to use PG dump to extract the table and use PG dump to inject the table back to where you dropped it from. And the challenge here is that it takes time. I had a two gigabyte Postgres instance or, or database within a Postgres instance, and it took about two hours to run the backup. And it took about 90 minutes to restore it. And then PG dump is fast, of course, but it takes hours to run these. And perhaps with C uh, SQL Server, I'm often uh, sort of expecting it to compress and be super fast on stuff like this. With Postgres, it seems to be slightly more relaxed in the sense. All right. So that sounds that sounds pretty easy. You know, and coming from where I'm coming from, it sounds pretty easy and definitely something that would be a great idea to to detail in my disaster recovery scenarios as well. And and giving how and uh, what you describe here with both the backup and the restore, I, I think this is something we could also look at. For my use cases today, we don't need it, but it's perhaps good to be prepared if we plug more critical data into that type of database as well. Sometimes you have quite a hefty cost associated with storing data in Azure. So what's the cost for backing up things here? So it's a little bit different than what you would perhaps expect from regular backup cost. So what's included in the instance of the Postgres is 100% of the server storage that you provisioned and what you're paying for each month. That's included as backup storage. So it's one-to-one -one mapping. So let's say you have a database of 10 gigabytes and you're paying for 10 gigs, but perhaps the database is five gigs. Then you have 10 gigs of free backup storage to utilize. But obviously, if you're, if you're doing these weekly full backups and you have the 35 days retention, then the 10 gigs is not going to be enough after two weeks. And additional space is built per gigabyte per month. So that's 10 cents per gig per month. I would say it's, it's very affordable in the sense. But obviously, if somebody's running a 16 terabyte uh, instance and has these multi-terabyte backups, then yes, you need to prepare for, for the additional cost, but backup will always cost you something. Uh, one last thing here, and it doesn't really have to do that much with backup, but it has to do with Postgres. So by October 2022, I have to be careful to, to get the year right, uh, version 10 of Postgres running in Azure will go out of support because version 11 is available. So you get this 
uh, notification when you provision a Postgres or if you have the version 10 running. And in order to upgrade to version 11, you need to do exactly what we discussed here. You need to use PG dump or a full backup of whatever databases you have, and then you restore to a new instance. And for the new instance, you select version 11. And once that's stable enough, you change the connection strings in your apps to talk with the new version. So this was interesting because with Azure SQL, obviously you do not need to do this. You simply change the version from the drop-down menu and it automatically changes that. But with Postgres, you have to do it manually because this, this sort of tells me that there's a real VM running a specific copy of something and you need to migrate to a different batch of, of VMs running in a cluster maintained by Microsoft to have this up and running. Yeah, and, and that rings a, a few bells, uh, you know, things to think about when you do that. I like the idea of this kind of side-by-side -side setup. You set up a new instance, select a new version. You can restore things there. You can make sure it works. You can actually, before you even take the old one down, you can still use that, uh, run it in read-only mode, for example. And then with the new one, you can verify and run whatever tests you have. Um, uh, but but when you do the switch, uh, you might have to think about the connection string being different um, because you, you might have new usernames and passwords. Or you should have new usernames and passwords. Uh, but also the endpoint might be different because it's a new instance. You have a different name. So unless you're only working with custom DNS on your SQL servers or your PostgreSQL servers, which I have pretty much never seen anyone do, most people use those plugged into the key vault as a connection string, and then whatever applications you have will just get the connection string. Then just make sure that you update that everywhere as well. So wherever you're pointing to this SQL server, when you now back it up or restore from the backup on the new instance running version 11, just make sure that everything pointing to your PostgreSQL server is actually pointing to the new instance before you, uh, before you go live or at the same time as you go live. That's a solid ad advice for sure. So I, I think this was the essence of, of doing backups and restoring Postgres databases. The key really is configuring Key Vault, having the access uh, levels set correctly, and also running the PowerShell script if you need to grant permissions within the database. And, and why would you need to grant the permissions? Because if somebody else set up and provisioned the whole Postgres instance, you might not have those credentials because they're built into the database. And now as an admin, you simply need to run the backups. And for this, you need to use the PowerShell to sort of grant the impersonated access to all of the databases that you do not know how they are configured. Alrighty, so the last bit, <clears throat> the unexpected question. I think it's my turn to ask you, Toby. So here it goes. If you could have dinner with anyone, who would you choose outside your family, of course? And what would you have for dinner? Wow, great question. So, um, well, multiple questions. There's there's two questions, really. Who um, would I have dinner with and what would I eat? So I would say if I could have dinner with anyone, um, you know, what's on my plate is not going to matter. But if I had to select something, I would probably take like a, a charcuterie, uh, like a, a, a set of cheeses and, you know, some good uh, parmigiano and, and stuff like this and a, perhaps a nice... A uh, glass of red wine, perhaps a ripasso or an amarone, and 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 some nice cheeses to go with that. Um, 
and and whatever good ham you can find that that sits well with the specific wine you selected. But that's a different story. Uh, coming back to the fine dining thing, so who would I choose to have dinner with if I could select anyone? Um, that's actually a great question, and uh, and you know I I could of course do the you know in in case of my my partner listens to the show, I would obviously say well my partner of course, uh, but I do that every night, so I would probably sit for a few hours and pick uh, the brains of either Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, right? Because these are visionaries who not only put their visions into practice, they also have these grandiose ideas of how they want to change the world and they do change the world, right? Um, so if, if I could spend time having dinner with someone, I would just sit and listen, but also perhaps take my own ideas for a spin and they would probably reject all of them. Um, but I, I think it would be healthy to have a dialogue, for example, with Bill Gates and, you know, on the environment and the environmental impact society has now on, uh, you know, the, the global warming, for example. And he has a lot of great insights. You know, a lot of people know Bill Gates from uh, starting Microsoft and being this uh, tech person. But, you know, in, in the last decades, he's been focusing on, um, you know, a lot of different things, which is perhaps not so much Microsoft, but more the, the fund, um, and the Gates Foundation that they have. And, and also, you know, his, his writing books and, and papers on the climate and doing a lot of talks on that. So I think it would be really interesting to sit down and listen to, uh, to him or, or just have a conversation about where are we today? And, you know, if if he could hand over his, um, it's when you call it stafette pin, like when you do a sprint, you hand, you hand over the, the thing to the other one who takes the sprint. Um, if you could hand over that from, from you to someone else, you know, what would be your wish that they did for the coming 30 years for the environment, for example? Because I'm obviously also an avid environmentalist. I love the outdoors and I hope the environment uh, really stays more healthy in the future and whatever we can do to preserve that is, you know, I'm all in. Um, so I think that would be a nice conversation to have, you know, talk about more analog things, perhaps not so much tech, definitely not Microsoft related. Uh, you know, obviously he started the company and, and I've had close ties to the company for two decades, but I would probably spend most of the time talking about what could we do for future generations and how could we, what do we need to do and how do we motivate you know, the, the existing generations, us, but also the, you, you know, our offspring, how do we mo motivate the coming generations to really take care of the environment? Because that is important uh, as an example. So I, th I think that, you know, long answer to a short question, but I think that um, would be something that I would like to spend time on. And, and the reason I have those thoughts is, you know, if you could spend time with anyone, you know, it, I could have just said, hey, Warren Buffett, teach me how to become rich, right? But money is only as good as what you make of your life, right? So you, you can have a, a pile of money, but if you don't enjoy your life or if you don't have a good time, you know, on the journey, what good is the money, right? And that said, he is, he is a great mind. I've read a lot of his books as well. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of investment books um, based off of uh, him, but also, you know, he's writing a lot as well or I have written a lot. But yeah, final answer, Bill Gates. Uh, talk about future generations. What can we do for them? How can we improve the world and society as a whole? 
Um, and how do we motivate them to do that? You know, to not be the the you know the, the lazy people with the phone in the hand or, or getting the iPad neck as we call it. How do we motivate people to uh, really you know go the extra mile to take care of this planet? Final answer done. <laughs> that's a that's that's a really insightful answer. I I hadn't thought of this this option because I think. Many times people associate Bill Gates with Microsoft and tech and everything else. But the last couple of books he's written and, and, and published, they are not about tech anymore. He barely mentions Microsoft anymore. It's, it's everything else. So that would probably be an interesting conversation to listen to on, on, on what he could bring outside the, the, the written word here. Thank you for this. Yep. And thank you for joining this episode on backing up PostgreSQL databases in Azure. And we hope to hear from you next week. All right. Until then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.